I just woke up. Don't tell me it's time already. Another episode? Welcome back to your 12th favorite podcast, Reeducated, where we reimagine, rethink, and reinvent education. It's your host, Gautam Yegapin, alive and blessed to present today's conversation. Stay thirsty for knowledge, and I guess water too. Hello, hello. I hope y'all are having yet another phenomenal week. It's episode 31. Happy Valentine's Day, and today we have an extremely special guest, Dr. Stephen Marsh. He is a novelist and essayist, penning The Next Civil War and The Hunger of the Wolf in 2015. He has written opinion pieces and essays for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, and The Walrus. He received his doctorate in early modern English drama from the University of Toronto and was a professor of Renaissance drama until 2007. Today's episode is our second on the ChatGPT installment, in which we discuss Dr. Marsh's piece on The Atlantic called The College Essay is Dead. We discuss the importance of writing and its elements that are inherently human, making it difficult for computers to model. Transitioning into more abstract concepts covering the limits of AI and the future of education. We then discuss the divergence of the humanities from the hard sciences in universities and the impacts that this form of education can have on its students. I wanted to begin this conversation by understanding the importance of writing and English. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Here you go. When I think about English, for example, the way a lot of my early education was built on is you should be good at English so you can write good essays. You need to write good essays so you can get good grades and you need to get good grades mm-hmm. so you can get into good colleges, which yes. kind of took away from this a deeper sense of meaning and value in language and communication in itself. And so if ChatGPT is able to, let's say for any school essay you need to write it's able to come in and do that for you as an english professor what would you say is like the real meaning behind writing why is writing such a useful thing regardless of getting into college or regardless of any of those things well we only use those we only tell students that because we can't tell them like this is actually a way to get you to learn how to think right and to get you to learn how to communicate information and also how to analyze data how to analyze sources how to analyze texts right like we don't tell them any of that because you know they'd be like well i don't care right we tell them no you better be scared because you won't be able to get good grades or you won't be able to write things in business or someone like that but you know the the truth is this is the method by which we teach students how to think in a humanistic way right this is how we teach people like you okay you've got to go out and find reliable information uh read text think about it prepare concepts from your reading let allow them to sit there generate ideas from your from your own brain in reaction to these texts and put them down meaningfully on a piece of paper and then everything else is like the correctness of expression is about really about clarity of communication right and getting to clarity of communication which is a, a, tr- a real value like clarity of in clarity of uh, communication is not something that is is suddenly going to be have no value Right. After like after the invention of this technology, like those things are all really, really important. We just have this very natural way of instructing children on how to do it. Right. Which is to get have them write a fifteen hundred word essay or, you know, I've been doing this since 
I was six, right? Like writing 500 word essays and like, right. And, 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 and then, and then adding an, adding on the 60 sentence essay. Right. Um, the, what, what chat GPT does, I mean, I think it does make it much easier to complete all of the technical stuff. Right. And in a way it's part of a process that's been ongoing. Like, when I was a kid, I mean, this will date me a little bit, but, you know, I was not considered very good at English because I had bad handwriting and my spelling wasn't particularly good. Right. And those were considered like the absolute hallmarks of literate literacy, mm. really. Right. At, like literacy itself. Um, you know, that 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 ended with the rise of word processing. Right. And it, it permitted people who like, you know, I, I know several major writers who are journalists and so on who are uh, dyslexic and it allowed them to flourish in a way that they would not have before and mm. similarly i think ChatGPT is going to you know it takes out the technical aspects of this the technical aspects of composition which are um you know very hard to learn and we're gonna there's you know i think of this as like the introduction of the pocket calculator Right. Like the pocket calculator means that doesn't mean that you do away with arithmetic and it doesn't mean that you do away with math. It doesn't mean that math ends. It just means that, you know, the arithmetic, the, there's a certain stage where getting at very highly advanced at certain levels of arithmetic is simply not what mathematics is anymore. And I think something similar could be waiting for us in language, right? Mm. Where what's going to matter in language is not necessarily your capacity to fulfill the technical obligations of structure and argument rather it's going to be intention is your can you express intention accurately and forcefully right and because you know gpt3 and chat gpt and you know also none of the other um large language models have any intention they're just replicating exposed you know text that already exists so, Can you expand you know, a little bit more on this concept of intention? Well, I would say that, um, you know, we've taught children to write like machines for a long time. Yes. Right. And now we're going to have to teach them to write like human beings. Right. We're going to have to teach them like it's not like because it's going to be very simple to have a four sentence paragraph where all the sentences have the correct variety of, of clauses and have the correct argumentation and are very clear and are um, fluid, uh, that kind of clarity and fluidity, which, you know, I've spent my last lifetime mastering is going to be a, a click away. What's going to matter more is the capacity to have intention and express intention and communicate intention that other people feel, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I will say that's entirely hypothesis. Right. We're seeing how this stuff works out in real time. Real time. And and, uh, you know, like, I think that's that's going to be very hard to grade. Like if you're a, if you're a professor and you actually have like 100 students going and figuring out their intentions rather than their communication abilities. I mean, that's that's a lot of work. Like that's yes. not something that you can actually, uh, you know, just just do like you can with a 1500 word essay. Hmm. You said something interesting that I, I want to touch back on. You said where kids are going to now be looked at to write like a human, and right. And so, what what does that what does that mean? What does that look like for you? What does it mean to? Well, and, I mean, and, I think before I was just quickly going to say I think part of it could actually be yeah. in the errors itself. I mean, I think as you get to this more perfect ideal model that 
and you you mentioned in your article where it can be a bunch of filler. A lot of times, you know, the, these perfect essays can sometimes be just a whole lot of fillers that just sound perfect. But perhaps it is in the errors that students make that that can lead an essay to possibly be more human. Well, I think, you know, just think of it naturally. If you're a high school English teacher and you got two students with roughly the same abilities, one of them says something perfectly smooth and articulate and cliche. And the other one says something really dumb that's clearly their own. Right now, right now, when you're looking at those two pieces, you're going to be like, well, that one was by machine and that one was written. So the one written by a person is worth more. Right. Like that's kind of, you know, that's not like a necessarily a, that's just a natural reaction to the to to the the facts on the ground if you know what i mean but i i think like what i really mean is that the ideals that we impart like part of the whole writing structure we have is to teach people how to write boilerplate like a huge a quantity of language that we use is just very very formulaic i mean the vast bulk of it right like everyone who is a lawyer you know somewhere between 95 and 99% of everything that they write is formulaic. They, they need to be worried about chat GPT. Cause if you want, if like, you know, what you use lawyers for is go write me a nasty letter, right? Well, now you really can find a machine that can write you a nasty letter, right? That, that a, a nasty, scary letter, just go and ask for it. it it'll produce it. So what's, What's going to be a value is that that kind of writing is going to be valued a lot less, right? And because it's going to be automated. Um, and so what we're going to teach people is how to write to communicate feeling. Um, but, you know, as I said, that's my hope. Like, I don't know if that's, if I don't know if that's what's happening. I've seen, I, like, I don't see any, that's my suspicion of what will happen. But the truth is what I see right now is just more breakdown of old, old forms. And the new one hasn't yet taken its place. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, as someone who writes a lot, let's say mm -hmm. and I've heard this. I've heard a lot of people talk about this. If we build legislation and if we build, you know, practices in education to to accommodate chat GPT 3.5, we mm -hmm. are already going to be behind when four or five or six comes out and, and it's significantly better. And so I guess yeah. my question for you is. Let's say we somehow in the in the near future develop an AI that can write perfect novels. And, 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 and so is there something that a human can do when it comes to expression through language that you believe that an AI just cannot get to? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, like the very first, like everyone has their oh shit moment with GPT, right? Like everyone yeah. who uses it, like that's <laughs> why, like everyone has their like holy shit moment, yes. right? And for me, it was, I wrote about it for the New Yorker like two years ago was when I had a, I had um, pseudo write, which is actually a way better essay writer than chat GPT three, like way better. Um, like if I were a cheating student, that's where I would go. I would <laughs> go to chat GPT three. I would go to chat GPT three. But pseudo, I had pseudo write take Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem Kubla Khan, you know, in Zanadu to Kubla Khan, which is this famous unfinished poem that he like didn't get to finish. And I had it finish it. And it wow. finished it, it, it and it finished it exactly the way that Samuel Taylor Coleridge would. And if you told me that Samuel Taylor Coleridge had written that, I would have absolutely believed it. Right. Wow. So when you when you yeah, well, exactly. So when you have that, the thing about these machines is that they obey Morovich's law, which is the more complex a system the easier it is for a, comp a computer to do the simpler it is the harder it is for it to do right almost all artificial 
intelligence obeys that law. And there's no, it's not an exception for, um, for large language models. So like one thing it can, it, it can do is write like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, right? Like in the, and get all the etymologies of the words, right. And like not be out of place historically and do all of the historical things correctly. Um, create a simple effective story that'll move people. It can't do right. Or, I mean, I've never seen it do it, right? I've like I've never like I've never I've never seen it um, uh, master the most basic human aspects of this, right? So, there like what you're dealing with here is something akin to a pocket calculator, right? A pocket calculator cannot ask questions, right? It cannot it cannot do high level mathematics. It can just help you do high level mathematics. And similarly here, like it can help you write. And it can help you write incredibly cool things. Like, you know, I'm working on a prompt story now, which will be an infinitely regenerative story where like every, like we just trained these prompts and it's going to recreate the story differently every time with different language and images, you know, forever. Um, like it, it's capable of really, really cool things like that. But you, you have to ask it the question, right? Like you have to be able to postulate what is important information. It mm. doesn't, it it's just a machine. It's just a series of instructions, right? It, you know, one of the things here is that our own language around language is so poor that we don't really, we don't really have the terms to deal with what we're facing, you know, and, and you know, it, that makes it seem much more powerful and also much less powerful than it is, right? Like mm. you can do things that people don't quite understand yet, but there's also like a lot of things that it really can't understand. And it, it can't, it, I mean, it, well, it doesn't understand at all, but it can't, it, it can't really, there's some things that it can't do, you know? And when you get, like, when you get to Palm, when, which I've seen, which is like 540 billion parameters, that's Google's large language model that is totally, I mean, it can do low level chain reasoning. You can talk to it, it will remember things as if it were a child, right? Wow. And I've that, seen, I see, I saw really, a post about it actually. It was quite impressive. Yeah, that was probably by me. Um, like, <laughs> it was, it was well. If it was in the Atlantic, it was. I wrote about. Oh, yeah. I wrote about it in the Atlantic. But um, the yeah, like it's a very, very strange and mysterious and magical property. It has magical properties. But you're going to have to like, just like a pocket calculator cannot even ask mathematical questions. These technologies are not going to be able to ask questions. Do you know what I mean? They're mm. not going to be able to, you know, create narrative worlds they're not gonna be able to do it i mean i well i guess they could as long as you tell it exactly what you want it to be but yeah. what to say what is worth saying they that, that's not something they can do mm. have you spoken to uh you know artificial intelligence engineers of what they think is the the final capacity of ai or is this more for well they have the no idea what's going on yeah right like they have like they, like the i i've spoken to you know extremely brilliant engineers like the google DeepMind people who were working mm. on palm um the guys who did cohere aiden gomez who was the inventor of transformer like one of the inventors of transformer who you know did it when he was 19 on like break from university and like they're sh as shocked as everyone else by the results right like you go and ask them well why is it capable of chain, chain link reasoning and they're like we have no idea right like we have we don't have the faintest idea and then you know like Transformer was in, invented, and they they had a bet 
they had a slightly better metric on translation than some other programs. They're like, oh, great. Well, home we go. We're done. And then somebody showed Aiden like, hey, this transformer just wrote a Wikipedia entry about itself that makes perfect sense. Uh, We don't know any. So he has his own holy shit moments with this stuff. Mm. Right. So like the engineers, you know, the point of AI is that you it thinks things that you can't think. So that makes it inherently unfathomable, and that means that it's totally unpredictable. I mean, it could flame out now, right? I mean, like, there's lots of, like, this, we could be at the peak right now. Like, I mean, that's what, like, they they said that it would end cardiology. It did, the AI would end cardiology. It didn't. It said we would have self-driving cars. We don't, right? Like, it, it, like, there, there, because they don't, don't they reach these limits that they don't really understand. And maybe they'll cross over. Maybe they won't. I mean, I, with this stuff, for me personally, just as an outsider, you know, in an atmosphere of total hype, I I only believe what I see. That's my rule. Mm. Like, I, like I, you hear so many rumors, you hear so much stuff, but like, I don't believe it until I see it. But then on the other hand, what I do see, I believe, which mm. is what a lot of people also don't do. Mm. Like, they see this stuff and they say, "Oh, it doesn't matter," and I'm like, "It it it clearly does." Mm. I just wanted to, you know, before uh, transgressing, I kind of wanted to. So, you you haven't seen the self driving cars? Well, they. I mean, they're just not. I've seen self driving cars, but they're not at a state with that we thought they would be, where they would take everything over and they would have mm. no accident ratio, and they would and they would be. I mean, they're also very good AI for cardiology. I mean, there's lots of examples. Like they, there were 200 AI experiments done to solve COVID, zero success rate. Right. Mm. Like they like. It's quite mysterious. Also, self-driving cars is the one that is, you know, they are just piling the money into, right? Yeah. Like it just is. It just has infinite resources on that problem, mm. right? So, it, I mean, for them not to be there right now, for us not to be driving a self-driving car, like right now, is a, a sign that there are limits. Mm. And you know, in your paper, you start talking about this something I think is fascinating, the intersection between the humanities and technology. And mm. so even that concept of dividing the two itself is, I think, uh, a modality of thinking that that many of us have. And so when you think about the humanities versus the technology, how do you differentiate those two? When you use as, when you speak, yeah. Well, they split quite a long time ago. I mean, they it, well, it wasn't really that long ago. It was really the 60s where specialization really took over. I mean, before then you had people like Einstein and Oppenheimer and, uh, you know, who were very broadly educated and had, you know, a huge interest in literary questions, even as they were, you know, specialists in nuclear fission and so on. And by the 60s, you know, it really starts to divide into what C.P. Snow called the two cultures, where you have scientists who do essentially technological studies that are empirically driven and are driven on results basis and you have and are uh, experiential or experimental and then you know on the other hand you have humanists who are involved in like essentially self-consuming their own narratives um and and ripping the basis of their own knowledge to shreds um or sort of more basic pedagogy um and the two really were not in contact. Like I certainly, I, I certainly um, know, I don't know many, I, I mean, there are human, there are exceptions of course, and there are spaces where they're interacting, um, but they're pretty rare. Whereas 
this stuff, linguistic AI, NLP in particular, natural language processing, it really demands a fusion. Like you can't, you can't really be, you can't really understand what you're doing unless you have a a, a technical grasp and a linguistic grasp over Mm. the problem. And um, I mean, you do see that in the rise of these like ethics and AI institutes, which are kind of sprouting up all over the place and which, and also like, you know, various, uh, companies hiring philosophers, like particularly philosophy of mind experts, because they're trying to figure out what the hell they're dealing with here. Like, how do you, you know, I was talking to the CEO of Google's team mind about like Palm. And I said, you know, in your promotional materials, you say like Palm understands language. Now you and I both, and I said to him like, you and I both know that that's not true. And he was like, well, you're right. But what are, what word are we supposed to use when you say to this program, speak eloquently, and it understands what you say? Or you say to it, write like Roald Dahl, and it says what you say. Or we say to it, describe, you know, the most popular pizza flavors in Bengali, and it know and it understands mm. what you say. We don't really have the language for negotiating those those distinctions, and that's why we actually need these philosophers. Like there, there is a, there is you know a terrible divide between humanities and and STEM. Um, the humanities, of course, are in sort of general rot and are decaying pretty rapidly at the moment where they're actually probably most useful. Like at the at the moment they could be most useful, they're totally unprepared, um, typically. And you know, and they are going to be they are going to be necessary for this particular you know kind of. Uh, technology to develop for mm. sure. I think that that concept you just talked about, even using the term understand is actually a really interesting one in, in having to yeah. define what that actually means. Like what does it mean when a human understands something versus a computer, for example, understands exactly. something? Are they similar? And and so if you had to imagine an ideal university or an ideal school where both mm-hmm. of these disciplines are, you know, it's a very interdisciplinary uh, standard. What would be different, do you think? Well, I wouldn't, I mean, if you're talking about like utopian fantasies, like yes. my fantasies of what yes. exists, it wouldn't necessarily be a university um, with all that goes with it. It would be something closer to Disney's Imaginarium where you had the technical people, you had creative people, you had scholarly people together in a space at the intersection of the rise of this technology, trying to figure out how to make it into something powerful and beautiful and safe. And um, and not just safe. Because, you know, the ethics, there's all these ethics, AI ethics stuff. I mean, it, it's sad that that's the only way we can imagine this this future. I mean, it has to do with emerging from social media, where we had like the rise of social media over a decade where they really had no humanistic understanding whatsoever and the consequences were brutal, right? You had, you had companies run without any, even understanding that humanistic questions of politics and society were of value and destroying them and, you know, really, really harming the world through that ignorance. Right. Um, So it's natural that there'd be these AI ethics institutes, but I really think that that one particular question, like AI ethics is, is small. 
It's actually not the biggest question at all. There's actually a lot of humanistic questions to bear on this about the meaning of language, about the way that this technology can be used to understand language, about the ways that this can be used to interpret texts, the way this can be used to interpret history, the way that we can build. We're going to build. I mean, awesome stuff is being built all the time, often just by techies like character.ai, where you can talk to basically any dead person in the world right like it, it's you know it like there it's great it's great but you know there if there were a more unified technologically enabled humanistically resonant you know space where this stuff could be negotiated and conjured really in a more effective way i mean i would i would love that but I, I mean, you know, I've been I've been doing this for like, as you said, I've been doing this since 2017, writing little short stories, publishing them basically in small places. And it's um, it's hard. People uh, there's there's there has been anyway, a great deal of resistance to it. Hmm. You know, something I'm thinking about and, and I've heard technologists use this as kind of like the counter to this concept of having the humanities be integral to even the development of a, a company. It's that, yeah. let's say I'm developing Facebook, for example. One, I probably don't even have the vision of how big it is right now. So to even consider like, oh, it is going to change entire democracies is not something that you would have in mind. And two, you you wouldn't really have, like if you had, you know, X amount of money and you had to hire a bunch of people, the first person you would think to hire would not be a philosopher or, you know, someone who's who's studying ethics. So how could you, how would that work in terms of developing a company? Well, the number one example of a humanist with a technological bent is Steve Jobs, right? Like that's what he was. He was a, he was trained in Shakespeare and calligraphy and a bunch of other like dropout stuff. So he went to India and bummed around India. He built all his companies from that basis, right? Mm. From a basis of empathy, focus, and there was a third one. I forget what it, I forget what it is. Imputation, like which was a cultural thing. And then, and when you look at the the history of Apple, or you look at the history of Steve Jobs' products, um, they're vastly superior to everything, and they and they have a vastly better effect on the world. Then your Googles, your Facebooks, your Twitters, you know, which are, uh, or even Amazon, which are, you know, just run by technocrats who have no social concepts at all, right? And also, I would say that Apple, I mean, I think they're still the biggest market company by market capitalization in the world, right? Like, that's a, that's a powerful uh, model. Right. Mm. And I think also when you look at technological companies that don't have a humanistic basis, they walk into walls pretty fast. Like Elon Musk is a brilliant, brilliant person. The fact that he does not understand like very basic concepts of parody and satire there you know, and his understanding of like speech and its regulation is really grade 11 level. You mm. know what I mean? Like it's not a sophisticated understanding it means that he's, you know, wasting forty four billion dollars. Right. Like uh, these things, these things are not um, luxuries. Mm. They're part of they're they're part of a larger understanding of what your the consequences of your work is and what it means. Right. Um, And and I think engineers who simply think that I mean, part of the problem here is you've, you've got these engineers like Facebook, to give it credit, has begged for regulation. Right. Like they've gone to Washington and begged for it for a long time. Right. And the institutions are simply not capable of providing it. Right. They're just simply not smart enough. They're not they don't have the they don't have the correct 
understanding of the present. So, you know, no help is going to come to us from the um, from the governments. Right. We have if we're going to build this safely and meaningfully and with purpose and beautifully, which I think it could all happen with AI, um, it'll have to be within the companies. Mm. I think that was an excellent point you brought up there where from the legislative perspective, a lot of people don't understand the tech. So that there it's it's no. beneficial to have a humanities incorporated with tech. And then also on the same front on the technical side, it would be beneficial to have a humanities approach as there as well. So it, it was cool that you talked more about the training as opposed to simply just having a bunch of people who are only trained in one thing and then having them come together. Um, yeah. I mean, what you want is people who are capable of thinking broadly those are always the most interesting people and they always yeah. produce the most interesting stuff i mean it's just that's just like one of the laws of the universe right <laughs> like it's not like like i mean it really is true like and i mean you know i it's easy for me to shit all over engineers for not knowing literature but like the humanists don't know anything i mean do you know how often i went to them and said like you got to look at this stuff you've got to look at this stuff like they don't care they're only they're only being forced into it because it became public like it, the, I, the humanists are every bit as ignorant and 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 blinkered <laughs> as the as the I mean more so like they and frankly much more so than the engineers right like it's very easy to to you know uh, make fun of Facebook but like you know the only response from the humanities to the rise of social media was like a big a big sniff you know and like they they they, they just similar like what they did with Google Books where they just did they just didn't take it seriously and so they they lost the chance for a universal library that could have been of huge benefit to humanity and instead we have this like ruined internet that's really substandard right that ultimately doesn't really serve us at all the way it should right and i you know i, I like the engine everyone it's easy to blame the engineers but the humanists deserve a lot of blame too like for sure they do they could have been reasonable grown-ups about it, and they just weren't. And so we we come to this divide because of you know you said in 1960 the divide happened, and and what happened yeah. in the 1960s that caused that? Well, I mean, partly it had to do with the sheer level of skill that you needed to yeah. get to, you know, but that happened on both sides. Like if you're doing negligible studies of very remote corners of Shakespeare, like I did from a PhD, um, you know, that just requires a level of specialization that you just can't, you just can't, doesn't permit, like, I would have loved to take it a year off and just studied physics. I, you know, like, that would have been, and, and hang out with a bunch of physicists, like they did at Oxford in the 30s, you know, taking port and doing snuff and whatever, like, I'm sure that would have been great for my intellectual development. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't part of the agenda, if you will. And of course, that got rapidly, that, that was much more true in STEM, where, you know, the pressure just got put on and the money just got so big and, um, and, it, and it just kind of, it, it had a sort of natural appeal. But it is important to recognize that even in that period, uh, you know, the Steve Jobs of this world were still the fusion of humanism and technology. Right. And they still and, and, and that's true of like the video, the great video game designers, too. Right. And the great like they were all capable of bridging these worlds. That's where the interesting mm. stuff came from. Right. And uh, like I, I don't like the divide is is very terrible, but we still it's it's not inevitable. And it is still a real um, a real cause of, of genuine stupidity. 
Mm. Like it's not the kind of thing where it's like, well, that's just a new way. It's like, no, no, no. It actually, you need both. You really do. Got it. And so I, I have a lot of people come on here who, who have different backgrounds. And so if they, let's say, studied physics, they come and talk, sometimes talk about how their learning of physics helps them either understand the world, navigate the world, or some of the big philosophical questions they get from their studies. And so you're actually mm -hmm. the first person who has extensively studied Shakespeare, which is very, very cool. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear how do you feel like what you've learned helps you navigate the world? And what type of philosophical questions do you have because of what you've studied? Jeez, I mean... You know, uh, I'm like, I, I did do my PhD in Shakespeare and of course Shakespeare is like extremely rich, right? Like he's like the richest writer of them all. Like the, the sheer density of possible interpretations in any Shakespearean text are so intense that that's, I mean, that's, that's why he's still studied so widely is that, um, what you learn from that is how to enter the infinity of a text. Right. Like if you go, you, you can just know that inside of this text is just a limitless amount of meaning that you can go in and find if you go and look for it. Right. So that in itself is a powerful knowledge to have that that exists. Right. That like there are texts where they are, they're just literally infinite. Like you just cannot get to the, well, I mean, maybe not literally infinite, but you can't get to the end of the meaning. Mm. Right. And so that offers you both the ability to analyze things in depth as in depth as possible, but also an understanding that the greatest texts and the greatest human moments are kind of fundamentally mysterious and have something at a remove in them that you're never going to get to the end of. And that you have to respect that, right? That there's a kind of darkness that you're not going to pass into. Right. And so that, that is sort of a basic training for observation, right? Which I think, is what I took from it as a, as a major skill, like how to observe text, how to parse meaning and how to see things and also to know what you're not seeing. And just because you don't see it, it doesn't mean it's not there. Right. Mm. Um, and, and those, those things are, uh, are very powerful abilities, but I always found with, you know, with the humanities education, it's never what you actually study. That is what gives you these, gifts for life like i mean the most important course i ever took was like a random course on aristotelian methodologies in 17th century uh um prose writers in england right which is essentially pamphlet writing and people like thomas brown and robert burton and the method of argumentation they had their logos ethos pathos with i mean that's how i make my living now that's how i make my living right is like doing the argumentation that i learned in that random class in whatever 2001 right like so it's and i i mean i think steve jobs talked about that too how it's like you know he took calligraphy you know if you were to say what is the purpose of my calligraphy class it would not be i'm going to design the imac but that's what <laughs> i mm. mean that's what that's what did it right like he, he he had this class and he'd suddenly learned like okay the thickness of a line is really important like it's not like it, it's like the thickness of a line is not something that you should just treat casually. I'll throw it up and see whatever. It's like that the line at the top has to be the exact right thickness or the whole effect will be ruined or like, you know, and, and so I think that's one of the things that a humanities education can offer is these kind of serendipitous moments of exchange. 
I think I think that happens in the sciences too, though, all the time. I mean, I talk to people all the time in the sciences who are like, I mean, GPT three is a perfect case in point. They were trying to improve a translation model a little bit, right? Like that's how they got the transformer. It's like, yeah, well, oh, this will help with the. They got they they added the they improved the translation metric by three percent. Then they suddenly discover it's writing Wikipedia pages about itself, right? Like this is not like this is not something that they were doing this out of pure creativity, and and, and then this you know future industry emerged from it. So you know I don't think people shouldn't be. I, I think it's a real mistake to be systematic in your education. Like I, I think you should pursue weirdness and things that you are attracted to for reasons you don't really understand because those are kind of where the richest parts of it come i think wow thanks for sharing i mean i feel like even just listening to that i'm i'm inspired i'm on campus right now i'm about to go out there i i do that sometimes where i'll just like sit in on a random class and and a lot of beauty does actually come from that often and... oh yeah especially things that are just i mean you know i did uh, i loved um calculus when I was in, and I was in English and whatever, French philosophy, but, um, you know, that gave me an understanding of beauty that I think has been just incredibly useful dealing with the stuff that I'm dealing with now. Right. Where it's like, well, maybe the concept of beauty that you, that you think of in like, you know, my love is like a red, red rose. There are other kinds of like really elaborate mechanical beauties that are apparent like a sine curve. Right. And like, and, and that's something to think about, too. Right. That's something that you should bear in mind. You should hold on to. I, I, I really believe in the eccentricity of education. I mean, I think one of the one of the, the single worst follies we have now is this idea that you should go to school to learn a skill. That's a terrible that's a suicide. That's a that's a uh, that's a terrible career advice path. I mean, because like everything's going to every skill that you can learn now could well be useless in five years easily. I mean, look at look at the guys, the number of people who are in law school right now. They're in second year law school and they turn on ChatGPT and they type in a legal question and they're like, oh, my God, no one is going to need me anymore. And they're not wrong. Right. Like like that, that is a huge like doing that because you think you're going to. I mean, it's just such a mistake. You know, be the ability to, you know, what we were talking about earlier, intention, being able to create, being able to ask the right questions, being able to ask the right questions is you I mean it's way more important than any skill that you can name right and and, and similarly like yeah I mean I like I, I I just think those are those are always more important than the mere technicalities and that brings us to the end of our conversation I wanted to first thank Dr. Marsh for sharing his insights and experience I think as AI becomes a more powerful resource in helping us write and navigate the world it becomes essential that the ability to think and formulate ideas becomes far more important than simply the expression of mediocre ideas. Prompts that I was given in high school, for example, such as write about the light and dark imagery of this book that everyone has read and everyone has given their own take on the internet has been dissected countless of times. And because of this, it will be far too simple for ChatGPT or simply a Google search to kind of give the ideas that the students need. And so these type of prompts fail because they don't actually make the students have to think anymore. And so we need to focus on prompts that are more specific to a certain case. 
So for example, in a class that I just took, we were given a case about undocumented immigrants in Oakland. And she had us write a memo that was very specific to that case that there's no way you could find something on the internet to replicate that because we had other articles that were very specific and we had that we had to tie into our piece and our opinion. And so using these type of cases or even the students' lives themselves to as the muse to extract some form of information from makes it much more difficult to simply just Google that or find that on the internet. The themes that we covered in the end of this conversation, primarily the importance of the humanities, is a discussion I really want to focus more on in future episodes. This concept really touches on my primary interest in education, which is the question, what is worth learning? An educational void of teaching the appreciation of aesthetic and beauty, I think, is simply a flawed education. Um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of what learning is about is answering the three questions of what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. But I wanted to thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I'll see you next week. And as per usual, stay re-educated. <laughs>